0: Read along with me, would we pick it up in verse 10? Because we went through the first nine verses, and we don't skip anything. So read along with me, if you would. Then Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. So the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth, and teach you what you shall say. But he said, O my Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well, and look, he also is coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Now you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth in his mouth, and I will teach you what you shall do. So he shall be your spokesman to the people, and he himself shall be as a mouth to you for you. you shall be to him as a God, as God. You shall take this rod in your hand for which you shall do the signs. So Moses went and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, "Please let me go and return to my brethren who are in Egypt, and see whether they are still alive." And Jethro said to Moses, "Go in peace." And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go return to Egypt, for all the men who sought your life are dead. Then Moses took his wife and his sons and set them on a donkey, and he returned to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the rod of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do all the wonders before Pharaoh which I have put in your hand, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Now I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed I will kill your son, your firstborn. And it came to pass on the way at the encampment that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. And Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at Moses' feet and said, Surely you are a husband of blood to me. So he let him go. Then he said, I'm sorry, then she said, You are a husband of blood because of the circumcision. Now, I don't know, you read that and anyone else go, What? Well, okay, that's normal. I just want you to know that. And the Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness and meet Moses. So he went and met him on the mountain of God and kissed him. So Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord who had sent him and all the signs in which he had commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the children of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. Then he did the signs in the sight of the people, and the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel, and that he had looked on their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, we come before you on this beautiful but very warm, balmy day. And we ask for your spirit to have free reign upon each of us. Nothing bizarre and weird and wonky. To be honest, what we really want is just to experience You. Through Your Word, Lord, we want to experience You. In a way, Lord, that we know You're personal. That You meet us at where we're at personally. You know our thoughts, our heart, the things that we value and the things we'd rather let go of. The things we battle and the things we feel we stand in victory over. And Lord, I pray for every person here, myself included, that we would experience You in Your Word today by the power of Your Spirit. That You would reveal Yourself, Your love, Your will, Your pleasure for us, each of us today, God. That You would reveal to us what You want to do right now, what You currently are doing in our lives. Lord, that we would gladly let go of that which You want to take, we'd gladly receive that which You want to give. Lord, if there be any here who have yet to say yes to you and maybe don't even know what that means yet, make that clear to them that today they would say yes. God, for me, get me out of your way. Immerse me in your spirit that I would disappear and you would appear. Fill me to overflowing, God, that you would do through me what I cannot humanly do. And I thank you for the privilege today of being able to come before you with this precious flock and to celebrate you, to celebrate you in your word. So have your way now, God, I pray. Thank you for the wonderful things you're going to do in this time. Lord, may we have so much fun. May your scripture come alive for us and today make it beautiful, profound, God, and personal, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I would say today, as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true just because I say so or because I look smart with my glasses. But rather search the scripture, let the Bible be that from which you test all things. There's enough guys out there purporting to be all kinds of experts in things they know little of. And I just want to know the Lord and his word. And I want to love him more. The chapter begins with Moses arguing with a bush that's on fire in the middle of the wilderness. In that bush is a God, the God, who speaks to him about a mission where he's seen the affliction of the people he's heard their cries he knows their sorrows and he's come down to deliver them and for all of that Moses has no objection until God says he wants to use him from the beginning of that that was in chapter 3 actually where that begins Moses's first objection is who am I for which God answers I will be with you then the second concern roughly 21 is well who are they and God says I'll give you favor And then with that here, it's, well, what about my weakness? My, well, my shortcomings. For which God says, I'll be with them too. That's God's basic response to any of us in our calling. Who am I? I'll be with you. That's all you need. Who are they? I'll give you favor. That's all you need. Well, what about my shortcomings? What about my weaknesses? God's like, I'm there too. Now with that, we have one of the weirdest and wonkiest set of verses, don't we? We have strange things. God has this great calling and then He wants to kill him. And then the wife circumcises a boy and then she says... Alright, you're a husband of blood. And God just moves on as if that were normal everyday business. Like any of us, it happens every day. And then from all of that, Moses comes, or his brother comes, kisses him. And then he gets this whole situation where God was angry. And then in it all, he's going to have this weird situation. And I'd like like you to think how it ends. It ends with people worshipping. Now that's the strangest thing. It starts with a man arguing. God seeks to kill the guy by the middle of it, but doesn't. And then it ends with a bunch of people worshipping. And you think, that's the strangest road to worship I've ever seen. How would you like that at the beginning of something? God seeks to kill one of you, but something weird happens, and at the end of it all, we all start worshipping, and you think, that was a strange church service, don't you think? It should be. Now, I'd like you to look at what we have here. In verse 10, Moses says to the Lord, I'm not eloquent. Now, understand, there is this general concept that God picks people because of the, uh, of the abundance of their ability you know, like for instance, if God wanted to start a dance ministry, obviously He's going to pick Arena, or someone like Arena, because after all, she has all this experience in dancing. If God wanted to call someone to Uzbekistan, more than likely, wouldn't it be Natalie? I mean, after all, she is Uzbekistani, Uzbekistan, however it is, she is that. Right? If God wanted to minister to the boy bands, Landon's a shoe-in. We know how that works, right? Is that how that works, or is it? So why send Paul to the Gentiles? Because God loves getting credit for what God does. And he hates to compete with you over that. And there's something about sending you in a place where you're absolutely ill-equipped that God just gets jollies over. He really actually likes to. Because in the end of it all, it seems like every breath you take, you have to cry out to God and say, I don't know what to do now. And that's such a good place to be. Funny, because the stuff before that is, I don't want to do anything because I can't do it. And God's like, actually, you're halfway there. You can't do it, which is perfect. That's honest inventory. Of course you can't do it. But the fact that you can't do it doesn't mean that God can't do it through you. But if you can't do it and God does it through you, well, then clearly he gets the credit. That's the point of it. And the Lord loves to put you in a place where you can't do it. Can I dare say this? Marriage is something you can't do. At least well. You can muck up a marriage really well. Any human being can do that. You can muck up children a great deal because any human being can do that. But to be a good husband or wife or a good parent, only God can do that. Because to be honest, He has to slaughter the part of you that's naturally selfish to be that. Because selfishness does not work in either one of those circumstances or contexts. It doesn't work, by the way, as a friend either, does it? That's like, don't you, don't you think, you know what, I want to find three friends that are all totally Selfish so they could abuse me and use me for all I'm worth, that would be awesome. Unless you're kind of masochistic, chances are you're not going to be that kind of person. And You shouldn't pick friends like that. Now notice the argument in verse 10, because it's almost accusatory. I don't know if you noticed. Pause for effect. Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent. We kind of got that. Now, the word for eloquent, for what it's worth, for, it literally means stupid or heavy or difficult. And he says that, by the way, slow in regards to slow, slow of speech and slow of tongue. That's his argument. But notice what he says in between. I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you've spoken to your servant. Do you realize what, what he's saying here? He goes, when, when I started talking to this bush, I wasn't a good speaker. But now that I've been talking with you for a while, nothing has changed. Do you see that statement? Because it's easy to overlook. Either before or since I've talked to you. Now what happens here is God's got a calling. So God speaks to, you know, all of a sudden, God speaks to Marcia. And he says... And I could just point to you because you're both kind of next to each other. So it's like two for one. And, and he says, Marcy, I'm calling you to this particular ministry. And, and you know it's like, I'm calling you to a circus ministry to walk the tightrope. And you're saying, I've never walked a tightrope before. And, and, and while God is speaking with you, you're trying to walk the curb. And you keep falling off the curb. And you're going, I can't even walk on the curb. Things haven't changed enough yet. And God goes, no, no, no. You need to trust me when you get there. And in that you're going, no, no, no. I wasn't able to do it before you called me. And I'm still not able to do it now five minutes later while we'll still in conversation. Have you ever done that with God? God calls you to something, and you say, well, when you started calling me, I couldn't do it. And now, five minutes later, I still can't do it. Forget it. I still can't do it. God's like, I never said you could do it in the first place. I never looked for your ability. Because either before we started talking, I wasn't a good speaker. And now that we've been in this conversation, I'm not a good speaker still. Like, well, if you read it from chapter 3 to chapter 4... This is a five-minute conversation. And he's like, things haven't changed fast enough for me to go. And you know what's strange? Is that we can do that, and God's going to flesh this out to what it really is. But he's throwing out his insecurities like any one of us would be. And say, look, I can't do this. I mean, of all the things you wanted me to do, couldn't you actually have me be like a beat-up-the-shepherd ministry? Because it seemed like Moses could do that quite well just a, a chapter ago. Oh, no, 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 I'm not calling you to that. I'm calling you to speak so all of a sudden you're the person that you feel like when you open your mouth geese are being strangled and the person next to you just sounds like angels are singing and you go I don't get it and God says I'm going to call you to write a song and you go that's the goofiest thing I've ever heard like it's like a mime song or somebody else going to sing it and I'm going to like Millie Vanilli it how does this work and God goes no no you're going to sing it and you're like no 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 you don't understand the person next to me is like oh and I'm like ah you know how does that work and God goes, you need to trust me. And you're like, well, you know what? I just tried singing again three minutes later and it still hasn't changed. And God goes, that's all right. And listen what he says. So who made your mouth? Do you think for a moment you're informing me of something? I don't know. He's like, you know, my mouth is stupid. That's what he's saying. My mouth is stupid. My talk is stupid. I'm stupid. Have you ever done that with God? And God says, excuse me. You're making fun of my invention. You're aware of that, aren't you? I'm ugly. You're ugly. I made you. I'm dumb. You're dumb. I made you. Don't make fun of my creation like that. He says this, well, who made your mouth? Who makes the mute, the blind, the seeing, the deaf? Who makes that? Isn't it me? Didn't I do that? Well, that becomes a really strange question. And that takes me to John 9. Because this is where we go in a religious circle. We and by the way, you know how it happens. It happens like this: somebody stands up somewhere and says, "You know, I was doing really great, and then the devil jumped up and I got a cold." And I said, "I don't, I, I rebuke you, Satan, and I got the flu." You know, and then from now I don't know. I just must not have been praying enough, and now, from now I got pneumonia. I'm going to die. Satan's just beating on me, beating on me, beating on me. You know, and all of a sudden somewhere in it, it's like kids wake up and they're like, "Oh, where's Satan? Where's Satan? He's around the corner. I'm going to get a cold, man. I just know it." And this is what God says. It's my job to handle this, not you. In chapter 9, there was a guy born blind. Now, that's a tough thing. Now, if a guy goes blind, the, 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 the conclusion normally among the, the religious community is, well, someone did some, he did something wrong. And he did something so wrong, God made him blind. He must have been a luster. You know, somebody was walking, and all of a sudden they were waving to a friend, and a bus went by and <clears throat> took his hand off. He probably stole a lot. And God took off his hands well, he couldn't steal anymore. That's how that works. I mean, that's the mindset. Well, what happens when a guy's born blind? He didn't have a chance to do anything and that's what the disciples asked Jesus. So who sinned that this guy was born blind? Was it his parents? How unfair for the guy. Was it something he was yet to do? Did he sin in the womb? Now, the natural assumption is somebody born blind must be a punishment from God. Or Satan. And Jesus says, neither. And this is what he says, actually. Listen to this. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, this is John 9, 3, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. God says, I made this guy born blind. I made him that way. Why? So that I could show my glory in him. And you go, I don't get it. You see, I'll put it this way. Your weakness is God's stage. God's platform. And we're so busy in this world hiding our weaknesses. And then you know what? You get to a church service where people are just humble and it sounds like something weirder than an AA you know, time because it's like, you know what? I'm a this and I was that and Jesus cured me of this and Jesus took care of that. And people are so honest you feel like, Nervous and uncomfortable around people because they're like, "Oh, I used to steal all the time. I was just a pervert, and I was just a this." And I tell you what, I just beat people. I punched puppies for fun, and everyone's talking around, it, and you feel like, "Well, I feel like I should make up something just to fit in." I um, stole gum and threw it at people, or you know, I mean, you just because you know everyone seems like, but uh, they're just being honest. And then, like, you know what? And then the Lord did something with that. I used to steal because I was selfish, and then. Well, then, the, then the Lord actually said why don't you work and give to other people and that's what I do now in my case I used to be a violent person you know what God did he made me a husband and a father and they've never seen that side of me to be honest that side got crucified over 20 years ago and then he made me a person who loves people I used to hate people now look at it. it's crazy and the idea is simple God says, I picked you because of your weakness. When God speaks to the nation, he says, I didn't pick you because you were exceptionally smart or gorgeous or big or strong. I picked you so that I could show my glory. It's the same thing. That's the idea in 1 Corinthians 1, when he said not many of you were smart or brilliant, not many of you were mighty. Now, if you came here to think, I just came here to feel smart and mighty, well, maybe that might be the case. But can I dare say that God has a habit of picking. Even if you were mighty, then he would put you in a place where something else you're not strong in. Because your your weakness is God's platform. Now, if you're too busy trying to hold your rep and trying to make sure you look good, it becomes rough being a Christian because God will take that part of you that's weak and he'll shine a light on it and you'll be hiding it. But there's something about not taking yourself so seriously and taking the Lord seriously that is so relieving, isn't it? Those of you who know, like when you stop trying to hide the fact you're not perfect? Anyone here actually still deluded enough to think you're perfect or close to it? It's okay not to be. Jesus actually loves imperfect people. By the way, might I remind you, he made you, he knows you better than you do. So he says, who made man's mouth? Who made the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? If not I, the Lord, now therefore, I'm going to be with your mouth. So don't worry about how weak it is, because I will be with your weakness. I'll be with it to use it to change the world. That's the idea. And by the way, and I'll teach you what you shall say, and I love the word teach here. For what it's with, Yerah, the word that's in the Hebrew, literally means to flow. And it comes from, because you know, every Hebrew word comes from a verb. And the idea is simple. Yo, 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 I'm going to flow. I'll flow right through you. Mm-mm-mm. So the first rap, I mean, think about it. The guy could beatbox because he was slow of speech. I mean, that's kind of the idea here. But it gets weirder because by the time he's done, it's going to look strange. I don't know if you ever really realized how this thing was. Moses isn't going to talk, except to Aaron. Aaron's going to be the spokesman. That's what we get by the end of it all. So imagine what it looks like when they go up to Pharaoh. Here's Moses. He gets to be like the strong, silent type, and Aaron gets to walk next to him when they kind of walk up. All right? Moses goes, and Aaron goes, "Let my people go now." How weird is that? Have you thought about that? Moses doesn't even get to talk, except to his brother, he gets a whisper in his ear, and Aaron's got to be like, sure, that's what you really want to say? Or else. Think about that. And by the way, that's not what God intended. Now, look at it with me. So, verse 13 says, and now he actually gets down to it. Moses is like, well, what about me? What about them? What about my weakness? finally he goes oh can you pick someone else now that's what he's been saying since the beginning we just haven't seen it because we don't see as god does all of these objections or really if you think about it he's laying before god his insecurities but as he's laid before his insecurities finally he just says oh my lord now how do you say okay boss send someone else how do you do that but moses does we read in verse 14 that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses now did you notice the anger of God was not kindled when he threw all of his insecurities at God who am I God didn't even get angry who are they God didn't get angry my mouth is weak God didn't get angry finally said send someone else God got angry he's like he wasn't angry with throwing, out his, throwing your insecurities at God going God I just feel like I can't do it and God says I never said you could But the moment you're like, you know what, can we just be honest with each other? I just don't want to do it. And that really bothers God. Because to be honest, how do you say Lord and then say no? How does that work? Now, it doesn't say that people are saved if they just confess Jesus as Savior. Part of your salvation is confessing Jesus as Lord. I think there's a lot of people, I mean, who doesn't want to get out of hell-free card? But submitting yourself to someone you can't necessarily see every second and say, all right, what you say, well, you're the boss. That's a different story altogether. And to be honest, that's, that's the problem we all have. I mean, we want to rule our own world. Wouldn't it be great if Jesus just enlisted himself to serve us for whatever we wanted to do with our life? But he saved us so he could be the Lord of our life, deliver us out of that. So he finally goes, can you just send someone else? Lord, please, boss. In the anger of the Lord... Was kindled against Moses and he said, Is not Aaron the Levite your brother? Look, he's coming, he can speak well. As if, by the way, what God was looking for was actually someone with a greater inventory of personal or natural needs. Let me just say this What God is looking for is to do something supernatural. And if He's looking to do something supernatural, all of your natural gifts are irrelevant. If you were a natural teacher, that does not mean you can spiritually teach. I've listened to guys who could teach natural things extremely well. I listened to a guy once talk about how to change a carburetor and how it would pertain to something spiritual. I did not get the metaphor at all. But I learned how to change a carburetor. Which is a little less, you know, today everything's kind of, you know, computers. You just put a new chip in and the whole thing's better. But... Uh, you know, I, Sorry, I need to reboot my car. But, but back, back when and you t- used to change things, and, and, and the, the whole idea of it was the guy was a gifted teacher in the world, but he wasn't spiritually gifted, at least that I could tell, because I, I got nothing spiritual. And understand, there's a radical difference. Because God's not looking to do something just temporary. If God were looking to do something temporary, he would just find something natural that you seem like somebody naturally propelled. But when God's looking to do something supernatural, He actually looks for somebody where He could do something supernatural in it. That's the part of this that's weird and wonky about it. So all of a sudden... God may not pull Landon out or myself to write a song. He'll pull somebody that doesn't even know how to sing. And then all of a sudden he invents auto-tune. So what difference does it make? And, you know, and, all, of that, and all of a sudden this song like, changes the whole world. And people go, oh, I realize that I need Jesus now. And you go, how did that happen? Because God didn't do something for just natural. He did it supernaturally. And if he's going to do it supernaturally, you can start with nothing and it doesn't matter. You know, and that's the beautiful part about this. God isn't looking, oh, now who's already naturally most gifted in this area? Let's use them. God is just looking, I could use anyone because I'm the one who has to do it anyways. What he's looking for is the person most available, not just the most able. And the most available, oddly enough, at this point, doesn't even seem to be Moses. Who made your mouth in the first place? Do you really think I'm surprised by this? you goes, send somebody else. Look it. Okay, if you really want to, I'll... Isn't, isn't Aaron coming to meet you? Isn't he your brother? Well, then I'll tell you what. And notice, by the way, in verse 15, you will speak to him and put the words in, in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and his mouth. Even though he can speak well, God's still going to have to be with his mouth to get this done anyways. Did you notice that? He doesn't say, I'll be with your mouth so you can whisper the right thing to your brother and then he can say it. He says, what needs to be done, I have to say it. God says this. And no matter what lips I attach that to, I'm the one who still has to say it. You want to use Aaron, I'm still going to have to be with his mouth anyways. But I already promised I'd be with yours. But did you notice that though Moses says send someone else, God doesn't replace him? He doesn't say, well, I tell you what then, sit down, Junior, I'll just use your brother. He doesn't. He says, I'm going to still use you anyways. But unfortunately, I'm going to use you in a lesser role than you could have been used in But don't miss that. Maybe you're in a situation right now where you're fighting with God. And you're fighting with God, to be honest, because what God wants to do is so much bigger than you can imagine, you can't even imagine how it could be done. Like you had to imagine how it could be done anyways. And in that, God says, I want to do something magnificent. And you're like, well, you're God, you can. And God says, I want to use you. And you're like, okay, well, that's where the problem is. As if somehow God was uh, was intimidated by your weakness or mine. And are like, but God, I'm, and God says, I know all that. And you're like, well, you know what? Can I just be honest with you? I just don't want to do it. God says, well, you're going to wind up being a part of it anyways, because I love you enough to do that. You just don't get to get to do it as well as you could have before. Now, look, at if God has something really crazy to do, wouldn't it be cool to let him do it and see what happens? Could you imagine if you're just like, all right, cool, God, just do it. And you're like, I don't know how. I don't know. And God's like, well, look. And you're like, you know, that's going to take a lot of money. God says, don't worry about that. That's my job. Well, you know what's going to take a real, you know, it's going to take some safety and security and it's going to take some details to get worked on. God says, do you really think I'm going to miss a detail in this? Everything revolves around people with God. All everything else, by the way, are just details God works out to get to those people, including in this case, to set them free. Now, are you fighting with God today? Now, maybe what you're doing is you're fighting with God and you've convinced yourself that you actually can't do it when really, in the end of it all, you just won't do it. Can we just be honest today? Because the difference is insecurity or rebellion. By the way, here, God fleshed out the fact that Moses was rebellious. Like, no, no, I really just don't want to do it. Because I'll tell you what, I'm going to bring your brother in, but you're still going to do it anyways. Make sure you do everything. So Moses wanted to return, verse 18... And I want you to see the reluctance of Moses in this. He returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please let me go and return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see whether they're still alive. Now, do you notice what he just said? He did not tell his father-in-law, and maybe you wouldn't tell your father-in-law, I'm going to go and stand before the seemingly most impo- powerful person in the world and tell him he needs to let go of all of his slaves. I don't know, maybe you wouldn't say that. But what he said is, you know, I was just thinking of maybe going back to Egypt a little bit and just checking to see if my family's still there. When really what God said was, I'm going to call you to change the world. Then maybe you would do the same. In a circumstance where God has something crazy, maybe you don't want to tell people because you're afraid if it doesn't pan out and you just ate something weird and it really wasn't a vision and you just had a weird dream instead, that, you know, people are going to laugh at you at one point and go, ha, 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 ha. Do you really think that that's going to happen? I mean, think about how many of us don't pray in faith like we could because we're afraid that if it doesn't pan out the way that God promised, someone's going to make fun of us if it doesn't happen that way. So he goes to his father in law and he goes, You know, I'm just going to go check on my family. Can I go? For which he says, Go ahead, you have my blessing. Go in peace. Now, notice he's back in Midian. Remember, he was in the the, the back of the desert. He has now gone home. So he's had his encounter with the bush. He's done with the bush, and now he's gone home. And while he's at home, he says, Can I go? I'm going to go check on my family, and his his father in law says, Go. Notice then in verse 19, and the Lord said to Moses and Midian, No, go. Did you get that in verse 19? Which means, by the way, he still hasn't gone. Did you get that? He talked to the bush, and the bush said, Go, go now, let's go. Your brother's coming to meet you. Don't worry about it, let's go. And he goes, All right. And so he goes home instead. And as he goes home, he says, Can I go? And his dad says, Sure, you can go, his father. And he says, Yeah, go. And then God says, Hello? Have you gone yet? Go! But notice what he says. He says, Return to Egypt, for all the men who sought your life are dead. And I wonder if that's why Moses was a little bit slow in going back to Egypt. You know, when I left there 40 years ago, people wanted to kill me. I mean, we're not just talking about psychotic neuroticism. You know, I'm not like, that wasn't paranoia. I mean, genuinely. I saw the most wanted, here was the amount that they would pay, and my face was on it. And with that, God's like, look it. Isn't it my job to protect you? Is it my job to take care of you? If I send you to who's crazy, isn't it my job to take care of you? No matter how crazy, how dangerous, how how whatever, if I say go, let me remind you I'm going with you. I'm never going to send you anywhere I'm not going to go to. God's not like going, go, try it out, come back and tell me how it works. God's like, I'm going there. Remember the whole idea is I've come to deliver the people of of Israel and I want to take you with. This was never about you go and I'll follow. God says, I'm going and I want you to come with because there are people right now, please hear me, there are people in bondage and I want to set them free and I want you to be a part of that. Will you go with me, please? Moses is like, Can you send someone else? And God goes, No, I'll send someone with. See the difference? So go. And then Moses goes home. And his father says, Go. And then Moses stays. And God says, Go. Those people that were going to kill you, Don't worry, they're done. They're over. You are no longer, Your life is no longer in danger By the sword of Egypt. So what happens? So Moses, verse Fifth, verse 20 takes his wife and his sons and sets them on a donkey and he returned to the land of Egypt and Moses took the rod of God. Interesting because he called it your rod or this rod in verse 17. So we've gone far with this thing. Now it's God's rod. and verse 20 it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, I want you to make sure you do everything I told you. Don't you dare for a to just do part of it. You've got three really cool signs. Why not do them all? Be really cool. Do them. Do what I've called you to. They're really crazy things. People are going to buy it. They're going to go with this. Make sure you do it. By the way, they're all supernatural. So they're not just cool little card tricks. But when you do those things, I want to warn you, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And you go, oh, this is really great. Isn't this to convince you know, Pharaoh? He goes, no, this was to convince God's people. And you go, well, wait, why would God harden his heart? And what does that mean? The word for for what it's worth, could you say the word, chazak? Could you say chazak? Now come on, that's just Hebrew. Chazak. That was a little bit better. It's got to have that little ch in it, right? Chazak. Now, the word does not mean change. The word does not mean sway. To harden means to solidify the direction it's already going in. Understand, when God hardens a heart, He doesn't change their mind. He goes well, you know, and because some people try to use it that way. Well, God hardens some people's hearts, and He doesn't with others. I pray that God hardens my heart just to Him. Not not in regards to hardening to Him, but in the sense that if I have the direction where I'm clinging to Him and I'm loving Him, then that God would solidify that conviction so I wouldn't sway in either direction. Does that make sense? And he goes, look at Pharaoh already has a natural animosity towards you. And he goes, I'm going to strengthen that animosity because in the end of it all I'm going to take down more than Pharaoh. I'm going to take down all of the land, all of the gods of Egypt because I don't just love the Israelites, I love the Egyptians too. And I want them to know that I'm the only god to worship and the only way to do that if i'd have just taken down pharaoh at the beginning the israelites would have left and all the egyptians would have been left going what just happened because i'm not interested in that what i want to do is i want to take down everything that's worshiped in egypt so that everyone will know that i'm the lord and by the time they leave it will not just be israelites it will be egyptians too that will be leaving and saying you know what you're right this is the only god because god loves the egyptian too friends so when you think, God, that person's in bondage. Just go ahead and kill that crack dealer. Or go ahead and k- take care of this situation. And God's like, look at you know what I want to do? I want to take down every God these people worship. So then in the end of it all, all that will be left will be me. So with that, when you go back, be sure you do all of this. And he says, well then. And when you do, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And then he says, look at it, he's not going to let the people go. Verse 22 he says, and then you shall say to Pharaoh, listen, Israel's my son. And you go, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Somebody just told me on the street with their little booth that God doesn't have any sons. Funny, well, according to Scripture, God has many sons. The Bible says, God has many sons. As a matter of fact, we'll quote this in one manner or another in Hosea 11, when it says, Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I've called my son, preparing us ultimately for Jesus. But listen, according to Romans 9.4, it says this, who are the Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption. Do you know why God has many sons? because he loves adopting i'm his son if you said yes to jesus christ you're his son now ladies perhaps there's that part of you already that goes excuse me what do you mean i'm a son i don't be a son well please understand in the middle east this is a big deal when a girl is born into a house she's a temporary member of the family now i don't mean that in any cruel way it's very simple Sooner or later, it is assumed that that daughter will be married off to another family, and as she is, she will be a member of their family to help continue on their family. When a daughter is born, they're given, the, the father is given a strand of three cords because he knows he's responsible to raise that child at a level in regards to her physical, in regards to her emotional, in regards to her spiritual. The idea of loving the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, that's the idea of that. And it's sort of like the idea of it is is that when a man comes to court the daughter... The father should be confident that that man will can, will uphold that standard of physical, emotional, and spiritual as well. And ultimately, that cord is placed on the son to be son-in-law's shoulder to say, "I am confident that you will continue to the level that I've raised my daughter." That's where we get, by the way, the basis of who gives this daughter away today in a in a wedding ceremony, where the father will openly declare. Who does? Her mother and I. We give our daughter away because we are confident that this man will uphold that standard. In my household, there are three, strand, three three stranded cords that are in my office. Two for my daughters and one for my wife because I never want to forget I have a standard with my wife to uphold as well. No. For what it's worth, ladies, you are not daughters. You are sons. And the reason is you are a permanent member of the family. Now that doesn't mean he looks at you like a boy. It means he looks at you as a permanent member. Did you get that? And the reason I say that is, my God is about adoption. So when someone says, God has no sons, ladies freak out that person and say, funny, I'm a son, and let's see where they go with that. And if they want to know where that comes from, go to Romans 8, because it says in Romans 8, by the way, you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. But rather, in verse 15, it says, But you receive the spirit of adoption by which you cry out, Abba, Father. Abba means daddy. And if you've accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, my God has adopted you. And in adopting you, you don't just get to cry out, Excuse me, sir, King of kings. You get to cry out, Daddy, to God. What a crazy thought. Now, maybe you never had a daddy. Maybe you had a father, or maybe you just had somebody that you never really even knew. You have a daddy now. The moment you said yes to the gift of Jesus Christ, you got a daddy. My prayer is that my two girls will always know they have two daddies. I mean, one on earth and one in heaven. Now, I got a daddy the moment I said yes. And you did too. And he loves you so much. So when a person says, God has no sons, how sad. He has many sons. He has one only begotten son, monogenes. The word means the only one from his gene pool. There's only one from God's species. That's his son, Jesus the Christ. But he adopted you. Now here he says, look at Israel's my son. Now it came to pass, speaking of sons, we get to the really fun text, right? Verse 24. And all of a sudden he camps out. By the way, the term, by the way, in verse 24, it says he was at the encampment and I think that's an interesting... In other words, somewhere down the line, he actually just stopped and set up shop. This wasn't just like he set up a tent on his way down. He's actually stopped and sort of stopped. And it says, There all of a sudden the Lord came in contact with... That's the word there for metam. And he sought to kill him. And you're like, sought to kill him? Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son. Now don't miss this. Wait a minute. What? His wife circumcises a son. I go, wait a minute, wait a minute. How many children did Zipporah... That means a weird question to ask. How many children did did Zipporah circumcise in verse 25? One. Do you see that? How many sons does... Does he have one son or more? Yes. As a matter of fact, in verse 20, look at what it says. Moses took his wife and his sons. Hmm. So she didn't circumcise all the boys, just one of them. Are you with me so far? Now, forgive me for... I mean, obviously, this is awkward for me or more than it is for you, perhaps. In Exodus 2.22, we do know that Moses had a son. His name is Gershon, which means stranger, or not from around here. And he says, because I've been a stranger in this land. In Exodus 18.6, Jethro will actually come back. Somewhere down the line, he's going to drop off his wife and kids. And it says he came with your wife and your two sons. So he does have two sons. As a matter of fact, in Acts 7, verse 29, when Stephen gives his sort of history, he says, Moses became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. Somewhere down the line, he has a second son. Before this point, we know he had one son, because it tells us in chapter 2, he had a son. He got married to Zipporah, had a a son. Named him Stranger. How would you like to have that name as a son? What's your son? What's your name? Stranger. All right. In Second chron- or First Chronicles twenty three, by the way, verse fifteen, it does tell us what the other son's name is. It says in First Chronicles twenty three that the sons of Moses were Gershom and Eleazar. Now I'm here playing a little bit of Sherlock Holmes with you. We're going to take some details and figure out what the Bible says, so we can come to our conclusion. He's got a second son, but he hasn't been mentioned up to this point. We don't have his name up to this point in Exodus or any of that. All we know is somewhere, all of a sudden, it became sons in verse 20. It's the first mention we have of him having sons. Before that point, it was he had a son. So somewhere between everything before this and verse 20, he had a second son. Are you with me on that? Well, the clue, by the way, for what it's worth is in Exodus 18. Because in Exodus 18, verse 4, and flip there if you can, if you have a Bible, or if you can, quicken your app. In Exodus 18, verse 4, it says that the name of the other, the other being the other son, was Eleazar, or Eliezer. for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Did you get that? Now, that becomes a fascinating statement. So let me see if I have this right. first first son, he says, well, we're going to call him stranger because I'm in a land that I shouldn't be in. Okay, I kind of got that. Chapter 2. Second son he named and he said, I'm going to call him helper or God my helper, which is what Eliezer means. I'm going to call him God my helper because God has been my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Did you get that? Notice the past tense. Not delivers me, continues to deliver me, but delivered me. Like it's a done deal. Now my question to you is, When did God deliver Moses from the sword of Pharaoh? Hmm. Might I say to you, look back to verse 19. The Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go return to Egypt for all the men who sought your life are dead. Could it be? that Eliezer was born between verse 19 and 20? Because I can't imagine... Now, I I get the idea that Moses wasn't going back because he still thought people were trying to kill him. Until God says in verse 19, they're they're dead, they're done, go back. And then he names a son, God my helper, because he has helped me, God has, and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Now, if that be the case, it makes sense why, in verse 20, he takes his wife and children and put them on a donkey. Because she actually would have had this child pretty soon. By the way, it would have made sense why he didn't, another reason why he didn't leave right away, because he's like, I can't go back to Egypt right now. My wife's pregnant. She's due any day. And I'm only telling you that's not gospel truth. I'm just telling you that's my opinion, because it's at least about all the clues I have. So if I put all that together, this is what we get. God argues, if you will, and Moses argues back. God, through a bush, argues with Moses and says, I want you to go to Egypt. Moses has a lot in stock because there's a wife with a baby on the way back at the house. He's going to go back to the house and say, you know what, can I go? I need to go check up on my family. And his dad, father-in-law says, yeah, 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 that's totally understandable. And God says, look at the people who are looking to take your life, they're done. Go, I said, go. And with that, Moses goes, okay. And then the baby's born, he's like, you know what, let's call him God has delivered me from the sword of the... I'm going to call him God, my helper. Now with that, there is a command sense, Genesis 17, that says that every boy that is born on the eighth day is to be circumcised because that shows your alignment with the covenant of God. Now that covenant was the same covenant two chapters before in Genesis 15 when God said, I'm going to deliver you out of that land after 400 years of slavery. It was that promise that Moses is going to fulfill here. And so, look at what happens. All of a sudden, Moses has set up camp. He isn't going where he should. He's sort of getting comfortable now. In the way, on the way, and all of a sudden, God goes, whoa, 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 something's got to change. And here's the deal. You want to be a progenitor of the covenant? Is the covenant even in your house? Because it's not right now. You've got a boy, and you're not doing what you're supposed to with the boy. And what's interesting is it seems like his wife knows it. Because it seems like she's the one who knew how to fix the problem. Praise the Lord for a wife, by the way, who steps in, or this would have been a much shorter book. Now, by the way, for what it's worth, notice, <laughs> notice by the way, in verse 26, it says, So he let him go. Did you ever wonder what that means? So he let him go. <laughs> he said, somewhere down the line, they were set up camp, and all of a sudden, God's like, Ah, 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 like this and his wife jumps up and circumcises the kid and God's like okay we're done could you imagine and then you know what it's like and you think wow I had to deal with God and now he's got to deal with the wife It goes you're a husband of blood to me now look at what you made me do now, some of you wives you know what that's like some of your husbands know it even better well the idea here in all of this she saves his life and all this but here's the point beloved because we can look at this and go how in the world does that pertain to my life in every way because if you're the one person, you want to see your friends grow in Christ. And you want to see people grab a hold of the promises of God. The question is, are they even in your house? Are you really willing to take it to your own house before you're willing to take it to the world? Because if you don't, what are we doing? God looks and he looks at Moses and he goes, Really? I can handle all your shortcomings. I knew about your mouth and I knew even about your lack of willingness. The question is, you know, in all of that... The worst part about this isn't that you even want to fight me about your calling. The worst part is you don't even want to bring my promises home before you're going to bring them out to the rest of the world. I understand why in 1 Timothy and in Titus it talks about a guy that's going to be a leader or even a guy that runs errands in the church which by the way is what a deacon really is. The word really means to run an errand. So when someone says, don't mess with me, I'm a deacon. I'm like, tell them, Tell him go get me a donut. I mean, that's what they do. Anyways, you know they're not. It's like give a guy a badge and he thinks he's a sheriff. Anyways, with all that in mind, think about this. God says about even those people, I want your house in order before you're going to try to get into, to get into my house and do something. I want your house to be in order first. I want your children to believe. I want your wife to be one that respects you. Because, you know, you've got to watch sometimes. You watch somebody and the guy's like, oh, I've got a million gifts and here's my CV and look at how trained and, and I've got five degrees in divinity and look at how all this stuff. And you look at their house and it's a mess and you're like, you're done here. Because it's like, if you can't even handle your own household, the last thing I want is you to come into God's house and mess that up too. And we pray that in our own house as well. God, please let our house know. There are things that are in disorder, but there are things like water pipes that burst. And that's much different like but God please let me be somebody that's respectable to my family and I understand why if you watch someone that grows up and they see their dad say all kinds of really funky and phenomenal things from a pulpit and then go home and live this mundane non-godly life how do you follow the Lord with that and you go this whole thing's a game that's I'd rather die than have my kids have be able to say that and i you know, you would know how many times I've prayed, Lord, if I'm going to live anything that looks like that, please just kill me. I'd rather them get over the sorrow of my death than the, the worst you know, than the problem of my hypocrisy. Well, with that in mind, you get the idea. Then, the idea is simple. God looks and he goes, look at it. if this covenant's going to happen, this covenant needs to be home first. And let me ask you, what's your home like? The first home, by the way, the one that's in your heart. I mean, not just the stuff you talk. Because we can all fool each other. We know how to say the lingo. We've learned the script. We want to pray that God delivers somebody out of bondage. What about you? Is there bondage in your own heart? Can you lay it before him? And take it home. With all that's being said today, please understand, i got to take this home too. Am I a child of this promise? Let's wrap this up and we go to prayer. So the Lord says to Aaron, and by the way, that's kind of interesting because he already said Aaron's on his way and then God goes he already knows, he's. I mean, he hasn't asked Aaron yet, or told him. But he's like, Aaron's coming, he's coming. And the guy goes, excuse me. And then he's going to go say, Aaron, can you go? and?" Which, by the way, means he knows that Moses is going to be dallying. By the way, I remind you, he's camping somewhere in the middle of it all, and that's where his brother's going to meet him? That's a little harder to find than back in Midian, don't you think? I mean, back at where he came from? So he's just camped somewhere, and his brother finds him. Which, by the way, shows you how God's behind it. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness and meet Moses. He went and met him on the mountain of God. So he's actually still... By the way, on the mountain of God means that's where he met the bush, God through the bush. So we went back there. His, his brother met him and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord that had sent to him and all the signs of which he had commanded him. Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the children of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. And when he did the signs in the sight of the people which then he did so all those things god said do he did and the people now notice this is how it ends they believed and when they heard that the lord had visited the children of israel and that he had looked on their affliction they bowed and worshiped now friends listen this is a very simple but very important fact you come into church and the music starts now that's not worship it's praise you can worship in praise. You cannot worship in praise. Worship is an open, one man or another, is a declaration of God's worthiness. Thus, the term. Worship. You could actually do the opposite. You could sing the songs. Your eyes could be rolling. You could be thinking about something else. You could actually, if you do it, if you're smart enough, or dumb enough, you can actually text somebody while you're singing a song and go, I, God, have everything And You know, and... You know, um, and, and in that there could be no worship that takes place at all but there are some that actually come and they want to praise and worship God but they feel like they can't and they hear people declaring God's freedom and his power and his glory but they feel alone they feel hurt they're scared they feel like they're in bondage they know when they walk in everybody else doesn't have any problems like they do and the enemy really wants you to believe that because then you'll never show up at church so you know you don't know about what I go through when I come in and everyone else is so happy and smiling and they're all like Pollyannic and they're just you know butterflies are flying and smurfs and they you know and it's just like they sweat skittles and rainbows come out and you know that's just what they do And, and it's like I come in and it's like it's like the ominous dark cloud of death you know And it's like, and I come in and everyone's like, oh, God, you're so awesome. You set me free. And I'm like, God, I wish you had set me free. And oh, God, I feel so hypocritical. No wonder why I can't worship. How do I say, God, you're so worthy when I don't even feel like God's doing anything? When I can't even think about what God has done. And I feel like at the moment I'm on my own. Oh, the enemy would love for you to believe that. So these people have spent four hundred years in bondage, four hundred years. And now Aaron, who they seem to know, and Moses, who's got a whisper at his brother while he speaks to them as well. He says, Listen, this is what God's done now. He's visited you. That's the term notice here in verse thirty one, which by the way, for what it's worth, the word literally means to care for, attend to. God has come to tend to you. He is here to reach you. That's what he's here to do. He's here to reach you. And then second, he's really genuinely looked upon your, and the word here, interesting, for affliction, is the word that means misery or depression. Interesting. It's like, look it. God's well aware of your depression. He's well aware of your misery, your failure, your fears, your anger. The part where you just want to scream because you don't understand your loss, your pain, your grief—he's aware of every bit of it. He's aware of every bit of it, and he is here to tend to you, to attend to you, to carefully. But it, being aware of that isn't going to bring you to worship. Look at verse 31. What did it take? There's one key verb. What did it take for the people to worship? They believed. Do you see that? Moses and Aaron are going to say, God's here. And He's here to bring you out of your bondage. He's here because He's aware of your grief and He's here to deliver you. He is aware of your pain and He's here to heal you. He's aware of your failures and He's here to strengthen you. He's aware of every failure, every grief, every anger, every bitterness, and He's here to deliver you from every bit of all of that. He cares. You could be here and go, blah, 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 shut up, let's get out of here, I'm hungry. Or you could believe. But if you don't want to believe, I wouldn't expect you to worship. But if you are going to believe, and by the way, it is true here as well, then it should inspire you to worship. Not just in this room, but when you walk out there and you declare that God is worthy on a bus, on the train, with your family, at a restaurant. You go, I don't know, can we pray in a public restaurant? Could you imagine, we reserve the right to refuse service to anyone who prays before their meal. Wow, wouldn't that be fun? Well, then maybe we eat a little bit of it before they kick us out. Anyway, so... You know, I mean, we, had, we used to have this habit, and every once in a while it all depends on what kind of rapport we have with the person who serves us. We used to ask, hey, we're going to be praying for our food anyways. So what can we pray for for you? Anything? And you be, you know what's amazing? Sometimes a waiter or a waitress will kind of look at you like you're from outer space, and they expect like a tentacle to fly out and grab a hold of them, and they're like, ah! Okay, just have your food, okay, man. But then there are other times they're like, you know, it's like, look at, um, I just had an abortion. And you're like, wow, didn't expect that. Or my mom's dying of cancer. You know what I find? Almost always that happens when no one else is in the restaurant. And that point is like, you know, there's room. Could you sit down for a minute? Can we talk? Can we just pray for you? And they're like, well, I've never prayed before. Well, you don't have to. We'll do it for you. And it's those moments, to be honest. And people, what are we afraid that we're going to offend them? This may be the only chance we have. If we never see them again, is it okay that they leave going, they're the weirdest people I ever met? But they seem to care. And it's all an act of worship. That's the point of it. You know why I'm doing it? Because God's worthy. He's worthy to do that. Look at this. We go to prayer. Let me ask you something. Is your heart here to worship? Or are you just here to endure? Do you believe that God is genuinely here to meet you? Or just everybody else? Only God knows what you go through and he's able to tend to your problems and everyone else's at the same time, he is the best and perfect multitasker. And he can meet you right where you're at. And you know what? Whatever that is. And you're like, you know what? I'm cutting. Nobody knows it. I hide my arms. God's like, I know. I'm afraid nobody will like me, ever. I'm afraid I'll die single. God's like, I know. And I care. I pretend like I'm all tough but in the end of it all I am so scared God's like I know I still struggle with this thing and I feel like I shouldn't and God's like I know but I'm here to meet you I'm afraid that if I really did what you called me to Lord I probably would wind up dying God's like I know but I failed you so many times God's like I don't remember that it's interesting that's the part God chooses not to know anymore friends, as we go to prayer today, can we let God meet us where He wants to? As His spokesman, one of many, but as His spokesman, He's here, and He knows your suffering, and He knows your affliction, and He'll know it better than I ever will. To be honest, He knows it better than you do. And He's here to meet you. But what He'd really like, in the end of it all, is for you to believe to trust that he really will meet you there. I mean, if he died on a cross to deliver you from your guilt and rose again to have the right to be your Lord, doesn't he know, doesn't he have a right to do that? Will you pray with me? Lord, we've looked at an awful lot in this chapter. We've looked at someone that seems like they throw all of their weaknesses before you and then in the end of it all, you just flesh out the fact that they just don't want to do it. So Lord, I pray for us. If there's anyone here, first of all, if that word's for them and they've been fighting the calling you've placed on their life and they think that they have legitimate reasons, but in the end of it all, if you fleshed it out, what would really be is just they just didn't want to do it. Then Lord, I just pray right now that you would show them that and then that change them today, Lord unhardened their heart. That's a heart you haven't hardened that way. That's clear. And Lord, if there are those here who really, it seems like all of their their prayers are public, all of their giving is public, all of their service is public, all of their everything is public, but there's really nothing in the house. There's no covenant in the house. Change that today, God, I pray. That we wouldn't be church Christians but we would be your children because you are so into adoption. And Lord, I know right now that you want to change that. Lord, that everyone in our house, that our hearts would be genuinely circumcised and soft to you. So Lord, don't let us just be people who just act nice here and then live an entire life that's different from this point on. God, please change that. Bring the covenant to our house, I pray, Lord, please. And for those, Lord, who have been just in a place, Lord, where they feel like they're in bondage and in weakness and in pain and and they've forgotten that you're really here to tend to them and they feel like you've passed them by for and, and just gone to everyone else, show them how ludicrous that lie is and show them today how you're here to meet them. And with that, Lord, right now, I just pray you would just genuinely speak to people so clearly right now that they can't help but worship you and bow their head and say thank you. So Lord, right now I just pray that you would meet us right where we're at. And if there be any who have not accepted this gift of Jesus, and they realize today it's not about a politic, it's about a person, a God who died on the cross and rose again to pay for all of our guilt, and now has the right to be Lord. If you've never accepted that gift or you're not sure, I want to pray this prayer and I ask you to listen. And if today you want to accept that gift, I simply ask for you to say amen at the end. And what you're saying is, I agree, let that prayer be my prayer, so be it in my life. And here it is. God in heaven, I confess to you that I'm a sinner. And I'm, not, I'm not perfect. I never claim to be. And I recognize, God, that you want perfection. And I can't give you that. So you're going to have to give it to me. But Jesus, I believe you died on the cross so that I could have your perfection, your innocence, in exchange for my guilt. And Jesus says, you died for all of my guilt and then rose again on the third day offering me a brand new life. I say yes to that. And Jesus says, you've died as a right to be my ransom. You rose as a right to be my Lord. So I confess you Jesus not just as my redeemer not just as my savior but as the architect of my reinvention as my Lord as well. And I pray Lord that you would just make my house one that reflects your grace and mercy and joy and you turn me into a person Lord that is used to see this world delivered. And Lord I pray that you would use me beyond my wildest imagination in ways that only you could get the glory for. So I'm yours. Have me, I pray. I surrender to you. I surrender my weaknesses. I surrender my failures. I surrender my guilt. I surrender all of me to you for you to shape and mold and do as you wish. I am yours. Have me, I pray. Father, if you really are into adopting... I'm willing to be adopted. Please adopt me. I recognize the payment was your son. So adopt me as your own. I want to be yours now. Have me, I pray. I am yours. I am yours. I am yours. In Jesus' name. If you agree, I ask you to say, Amen.